why do we do all the things that we do? It's a very fascinating question, and many people have answered it in different ways. For instance, if it's a good action, perhaps many, if not most, of people would say that they did it because they're basically good. If it was a bad action, some might say that the devil made them do it, or uh, alternatively, bad genes. Fortunately, if you are a Calvinist, you don't really have to think about that at all. You just say, God made me do it. Well, is that really true? Is it God and his sovereign decree that causes everything that we do? We're going to answer that today on Sinners and Saints as we continue our series on bad reasons why I'm not a Calvinist. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Okay, we're back at it again today. Taking apart this book called Why I'm Not a Calvinist. We've uh, rehashed this book from several different angles. We've been spending quite a bit of time dealing with some of the historical arguments and dealing with some of the exegetical arguments pertaining to this issue. And now we get into some of the philosophical arguments. As usual, joining us for our discussion is Reverend Adam Kalushin from Ontario United Reformed Church and Reverend Moses Janbazian from Pasadena URC. And I'm uh, Pastor John Sautel uh, from All Saints Reformed Church dealing with the issue of some of the philosophical questions that uh, surround this debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Today we're just going to sort of lay out the philosophical categories that are involved in this debate. And and as we begin, I I just want to say we have been critical at times. Well, we've been critical most of the time of the way this book has been written. I think that with um, the beginning of this argument, uh, they've done a very helpful job dealing with some of the uh, philosophical issues that pertain to the discussion, clarifying the uh, philosophical category so we can sort of have a helpful discussion. But one of the things you need to remember is, as we start to deal with these categories, is that it's not really possible to cram uh, the biblical data into uh, neatly into one of these categories. There's going to be a time when there's a little bit of overlap. There's going to be a time when none of these categories really uh, helpfully summarize uh, the totality of the biblical uh, revelation. So we want to let you know that just in advance so that you don't get caught into one of these. John, you're putting that kindly, but I'm more than a little perturbed about the way in which Walls introduces his discussion of the philosophical principles that he believes are necessary for an insightful discussion of this controversy. I mean, I do think it's important to be conversant in some of the basic philosophical discussions about the nature of human freedom in order to talk about this doctrine properly. But he's really, if you're going through the course of his argument, saying more than just we need to be conversant to have an insightful discussion. In my opinion, when you read his argument, he's basically saying you've got to start with these three philosophical categories and whatever view that you come up with has to essentially conform in some way to these three views. I don't find him just employing these categories to be helpful. As we'll see, he ends up trying to wedge uh, a Christian worldview or a Calvinist worldview into one of the camps, and I just don't find that well, correct, okay. in fairness, let alone In true. fairness, I think one thing that he does that was lacking in the earlier portions of the book is he makes his points clear, which we struggled with trying to figure out what exactly were they arguing before when they were dealing with some of the extended passages. At least he boils it down, gives a fair summary, Sure that there are things that he could clean up and 
and maybe clarify a little bit more. I, I did think it was interesting, however, how basically he impugns the Calvinistic position before he even lays out the categories. For instance, uh, he engages in this little... Uh, ad hominem attacking before he even gets into it. One of the things he says we shouldn't do to bias the discussion so you can understand it, but like, for instance, before he lays out the category, he says, according to Calvinism, it's entirely up to God who is and is not saved, and if one is not numbered among the elect, one cannot help but sin, yet God blames sinners and punishes them for their unbelief, even though they cannot act otherwise. Now, I'm sorry, he hasn't even begun to lay out the categories. He's not even begun to make that sentence... Um, coherent from a Calvinistic perspective, but he just sort of uh, paints blame on Calvinism as if it were really that simplistic to to pin him down, put him in a corner, and make him look stupid. Right, it's intuitive. When you first hear Calvinists talk that they're crazy, but I just couldn't figure out why until I yeah. figured out these philosophical categories. No, the problem is you're wrong, and we'll show you why you're wrong. You're learning the philosophical categories has obviously not helped you to understand the truth of the biblical revelation. And, and of course, too, didn't you catch his, uh, his humorous, albeit subtle, reference to Ted Kaczynski here at the beginning of chapter 3, where he was at Princeton and he was arguing with a, a Ph.D. major in mathematics who was supporting this terrible Calvinistic God who likes to uh, be like a little kid who peels the wings off of flies and watches them squirm. And they had these raging debates backwards and forward, but he could never really uh, resolve the debate one way or the other because he didn't have the categories almost make it sound like this is the view of crazy mad scientists, mathematicians, but people who are philosophically sensitive and biblically self-aware are going to come to uh, sensible conclusions about these issues. Well, okay, we, we, did some, we did some things here. We said some good things about him and others. You have to read this chapter, eyes wide open, be willing that every writer approaches a topic with their own presuppositions and they present truth according to their own perspective, even when they're trying to be fair. But what he does here I think is helpful. He lays out three basic categories for understanding how the human will operates or how philosophers have basically tried to define how the human will works. And so his first category is hard determinism. What does he mean by that? Well, he defines hard determinism as holding the two main tenets. The first is that hard determinism believes in an unbreakable causal chain. So everything that has ever happened, everything that is happening now, and everything that happens in the future is fixed because it's related to everything that came before it, and there is this fixed chain of causes that always happen that determine what will happen, and it's always going to be that way. And the second tenet of hard determinism, as he defines it, is that a free act would have no cause and therefore is impossible and non-existent. So in hard determinism, everything just goes on in a fixed way in, an, in a, a completely unbreakable causal chain. And in that system, there is no free action because to have a free action, there must be no cause. Now, one of the things you may have picked up on this, uh, Adam, when you were uh, reading his survey of determinism. First of all, he sets up, you should be aware of this, he sets up the category of hard determinism by talking about determinism in general. And determinism is the view of reality that says every effect has a cause. It believes in the principle of universal causality. But he sneaks something in here, and I'm just curious if you saw this. It's going to get me to a, 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 just an introductory critique of how he presents this information. He basically equates, or he ties, that's a better way to say it. he ties determinism to Enlightenment scientific theory. 
And with the explosion of learning and acquisition of knowledge, at least in the scientific realm at the time of the Enlightenment, there was this commitment to the world sort of being like a giant machine that an engineer had made, and every part had its place, and each uh, sort of ran in their own assigned way. And the Earth was like a fine-tuned, well-oiled machine. And basically... He says this is where the idea of determinism, at least in the concept of the human will, comes into the picture. They said, well, if it works well with predicting uh, the way planets move and investigating nature scientifically, then this probably is a good explanation for human choices. And then he pits that over against, I would say, postmodernism, postmodern views of science and quantum mechanics. And he's already setting things up here to say basically this. Determinism is an outmoded scientific way of looking at reality. And now we have a new view of reality based not on uh, Newtonian physics and this enlightenment way of looking at reality, but we have a, a new way of looking at reality was ushered in by Einstein and later scientific developments quantum, in the postmodern yeah, world, quantum, quantum mechanics quantum and so mechanic, forth. Quantum chaos theory and whatever. Well, right. all right, fine, except that if you look back in the history of moral philosophy, you'll find plenty of Thank deterministic you. attitudes Thank among you. early but writers. But that is what I was getting to in terms of my critique. There is no placement of these categories within the framework of historical discussion. And then he turns around later on to say that the traditional, i.e. Calvinistic way of looking at God and the the will and stuff, has been corrupted by secular philosophy. And yet he doesn't manage to realize or say that his views are are in some way, uh, I think, born out of sort of this postmodern well, philosophy let, and scientific theory. Look, I think the point that I would want to make about this, John, is whether, they're, whether he's referencing ancient moral philosophy, which he doesn't do much, if at all. No, really, he doesn't at all. Whether he's referencing Enlightenment scientific theories and making them analogous to or part of the cause of particular understandings of the nature of human freedom, or whether he's talking about postmodern ideas, uh, be they in the scientific realm or in the moral philosophy realm and relating that to his... The point is, we may look at all different kinds of philosophical systems and find things that are true in what they're stating and find things that we would reject. I mean, there are... Certainly, we would look to Enlightenment scientific principles and postmodern scientific principles and see reflected... A different truths about moral philosophy. Right. That, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't care. The, right. But what I think you're saying is he's... It's a subtle preemptive attack on determinism, which he's going to tie Calvinism to, and he basically he's saying it's a dinosaur. Right. Which actually all, tr- all what we would consider to be right views and wrong views are both dinosaurs and modern creatures. Sure. Okay, so I get that out of my craw. Coming back to hard determinism, the key thing that you need to wa- be aware of here is that every event, even... Even human decision-making has a cause. And he is arguing here, he's saying that basically determinism is committed to a view of reality where it says that there are no real choices. There's the illusion that we all make a choice, but he says that's just based upon our own uh, subjective sense, which is born out of psychological states and attitudes, but we really aren't free. No, we're not critiquing these, right? No, yeah, no, no, we're, we're just, just going saying through. here are okay, the categories. So there's, there's category one, hard determinism. The second one, Libertarian freedom, and 
as I understand his uh, interpretation of that philosophical camp, what libertarian freedom's position is, is that, look, look at how we live life. We deliberate about things. Mm -hmm. We make choices. We obviously hold people accountable and morally responsible for those choices. If we deliberate and choose and hold people accountable, then obviously it requires free actions. Right. Here's the key. Libertarian freedom, he argues, is the, com the philosophical commitment that there is no sufficient condition, prior condition, to any choice that we make. Every decision that you make is a radically free, autonomous decision. And then he gives some supporting arguments. Like you give the first one here, uh, which is saying that basically well, it's obvious. our common say, sense look, view of deliberate. Yeah, we uh, yeah, deliberate, we, we make choices, we hold people responsible. That obviously shows that there is freedom. Now, could I jump to this quick, John? Go ahead. I, I, want, I want you to understand the common assumption in analyzing the nature of freedom that both hard determinism and libertarian freedom have. Their common assumption is that for an act to be free, it must have no sufficient cause. In other words, it's impossible, according to libertarian freedom, to have actions which have sufficient causes because otherwise they wouldn't be free. And that's exactly why hard determinism says there is no free action because in order to have a free action, you can't have a sufficient cause. And they believe that everything is in an unbreakable chain of causes. We don't share as Calvinists that assumption of hard determinism and libertarian freedom. Both of those philosophical viewpoints are automatically excluding free agency and responsibility if there is a cause that comes outside of the individual. We don't accept that premise, and I know we're going to get more into this later. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we just leave it there for now. Okay. But just to point out that, again, what I don't like, and this is why I brought it up now, I don't like how already from the beginning it seems like whatever orthodox or biblical or correct view you're going to, kind of, you're going to have to come up with is going to have to fit somehow in these categories that I'm laying out. And if it doesn't, then it can't be right. And I don't accept that. But anyway, we'll okay. come to that later. Well, that, that brings up the third argument he makes in support of libertarian freedom. And, and it, it's worth noting, uh, one reason why he's so committed to this position is because basically it accounts for how man is responsible for his decisions. And what we all really ought to have an interest in is man being responsible for the decisions and the actions that he chooses and he carries out. We all agree with that. And I mean, and uh, he basically takes it as saying, well, there's no other really good alternative. Libertarian freedom is about the only one that says, no, you are really responsible for what you do. Now he says, well, Calvinists want to say, the compatibilists want to say this, but they don't really have a good argument. Only we do. Well, right there, of course, now you just said he calls Calvinists compatibilists, which I'm going to take issue with well, later. Let's, but well, that brings in the third one. Right. I mean, that's his soft determinism, also known as philosophical uh, category of people who are compatibilists. Right, and it's not hard to, to get a, a basic grasp of what a compatibilist or a soft determinist believes in his analysis here. It's a position that will affirm, on the one hand, this universal causality, right. this unbroken chain, and on the other hand, preserves human freedom. 
now immediately you say, well, that that those of you who are Calvinists say, well, that sounds like kind of like what we say. Well, we'll we'll come to talking about that in a minute. But it's important before we get there to be a little bit more specific about how he describes the connection of universal causality and human freedom in uh, compatibilism. I have, you know, written down three things here. First of all, uh, acts, he says, particular acts of humans are not compelled or caused by anything external. Secondly, acts are caused by internal conditions, meaning the character or whatever of the person who commits those actions. And third, the person could have acted differently. So acts are not compelled or caused by anything external. Acts are caused by internal conditions, and the person could have acted differently if they wanted to. So they don't put – so the, basically what soft determinism or com- compatibilism does is it says there is universal causality, but it's not to be found outside of the person who's committing the free acts. It can be found within them the internal conditions of the person who's acting. Yeah, well, I, I think just to clean up that first part of it, though, a little bit, I, the illustration he used I thought was helpful. When he said that there's no such... Uh, <clears throat> an act is free when it's not compelled by an external force. Now, what he means by that is he says, I'll give you an example. Let's just say Joe Blow is walking down to the polling booth on election day, and somebody grabs hold of him and ushers him into the polling booth and forcibly places his hand on the lever and pulls it with him and for him. Now, the agent, yes, is committing an action, but it's not a free choice action. That's what he means by it's not constrained by an external force. You're not being held over a barrel or having your arm twisted into doing something which is against what you desire. Um, Yeah, against what you desire and would choose. So, he lays out these conditions, and he says this is basically – these are the categories. Now, we've argued here a little bit. Yeah, <clears throat> they're helpful. They're a good starting point for our discussion. But, but here's what I want to bring it back to because what we might find is that compatibilism really doesn't square fully with historical confessional Calvinism. There's aspects of it that you know are going to be there, and there's aspects of it where we might say, well, maybe we should – hold off on completely identifying or labeling ourselves as Calvinists. But here's what I want to do. I want to say this, and this is open now our discussion up now that we have the categories before us. What view of the will does Scripture teach? We have the philosophical categories, and we already warned you that it might be the case that you can't force all of the biblical data into one of the categories. Only. Yeah, and of course, part of the problem, too, is that some of the language can be used either in an informal sense or in a technical sense, like the word compatible, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, Calvinists all will say that the sovereign control of God is compatible in reality with human freedom. But when they say that, they're not necessarily ascribing to the compatibilist you know, yeah. philosophy of a particular school the philosophy. nature of God's control. So whatever. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, John, I, I'm going to give me a little rope here. Again, I think you have a, a clear example where I, I don't assume that it's deliberate on the part of this man, but you have a clear example of where he's wedging 
what he ends up doing is wedging biblical categories into his predetermined philosophical systems. Not that the philosophical categories aren't helpful and for our descriptive nature even to make sense out of the biblical information. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he's wedging it in. And let me read you a quote uh, we've got here in the book, page 112. He has just uh, gone through and given a basic overview of what Calvinists believe about the will from the Westminster Confession. And he ends up saying, does this make coherent sense or is it riddled with contradiction and inconsistency? And then he has italicized. It depends altogether on how we define freedom. If we define freedom as hard determinists or libertarians do, then it is incoherent. Well, now what's the assumption here? Because, John, you're asking, what does the Bible teach? And, of course, we believe that what the Westminster Confession and the canons of the Synod of Dort and the Belgian Confession teach about the will is biblical. Our assumption is if the Westminster Confession's teaching is indeed biblical, then it isn't your job to say, well, I I see what you're saying. You're basically saying uh, what might happen is that each we, we might affirm something in each part of these categories because there's a sense in which what he's saying in part with the libertarian free will thing is true. Exactly. There's an assumption here that he's basically, he is the final arbiter of what of both the content and the boundaries of the discussion on the nature of human freedom are. They are these three categories, and one view might be able to hold up if you happen to hold the third. Well, listen, no, you don't start with your philosophical categories and then work your way back to the Scripture. This is the point. And maybe we could talk a little bit about the fact that we're creatures and we're limited in our understanding. But if the Scripture teaches that God sovereignly ordains every action, even every thought of every man, and if the Scripture teaches that man is responsible and is a free agent, then you are left with those things. I don't care what philosophical category you want to fit yourself into. It may be helpful to get your understanding a part of it, but the Scripture and God's revelation and our understanding, which is dependent entirely on that revelation, trumps our philosophical categories. Okay, so here's what we, we would do, is we might approach this by asking the question, does Scripture distinguish senses in which the will is free and which is not free? Right, coming back to your question, what does the Bible actually say about freedom? What, what you might say is that there may be cases where Scripture would affirm that you are a free agent in, in certain kinds of things that you freely choose. Now, it's not radically uncaused, but like what choice of of milk you buy at the grocery store is an entirely different question, perhaps, and we'll have to talk this through, than the question, can I choose Christ unto salvation all on my own without any uh, prior divine uh, operation within me? And this is one of the problems with discussing the, the nature of the will and, and the nature of choice in the abstract, as if all choices were equally on the same footing. And it's not true, because the Bible is very clear. It does make it clear that when it comes to some spiritual, uh, in the spiritual realm, and, and choices about Christ and salvation and, and obedience and so forth, that man uh, is incapable of doing right. Listen to this, and, and then Adam, you guys can work with me on this. Paul says, Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, and here is the key, for it's not able to do so. I think you make a very crucial 
point, and it's one uh, that hampers even the discussion of these matters in Reformed churches and among Reformed writers. Frankly, some of the critiques that he points out in the book are, are, are compelling uh, in the sense that they, they rightly point out some of the inconsistencies and sloppy language of some of those that are uh, Reformed pastors and, and uh, duly ordained and called. And so we, I would acknowledge that. But, I mean, this is all the more important why we're very careful to uh, make statements about what we mean when we're talking about the nature of human freedom. What do we think that the Bible teaches? Well, I can uh, summarize it as, as easily as I understand it. The first point that we have to agree on is that man was created, has always been, and will always be a free agent in the sense that he is responsible for his actions. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that you live before him and you give an answer to him for that which you have thought and that which you have said and that which you have done. And that never changes you are composed as a responsible free agent when you come into the world. And whether you are just born or whether you are a teenager or whether you're in your adult years or whether you're dying or whether you are in heaven or hell, everybody is a free agent in this sense. Man always has a natural liberty. It's what man has been created to be, in part. Always he is able to to do what he wants to do, and he is responsible. Calvinists, in that sense, we speak of man having free will. And by the way, just to say, uh, in case some of your uh, tentacles went up, some of you young Calvinists thinking that Adam has turned into an Arminian here, he's quoting right out of the Westminster Confession. Okay? It is true that we have used this language in our confession, so, so let's not jump to conclusions here, the whole point that he's trying to make here. Because there's distinctions that have to be made in order to make this make sense to you. So we've got to start with the principle of man being a free agent. Obviously, you could tell in my description of our understanding of human free agency, that natural liberty, which we all have, which we will always have, that I've used language that is common also to the libertarian freedom camp that you heard Walls uh, describe to you in the book. Now, that doesn't mean that I share or that we share, that Calvinists share all of the assumptions and the conclusions of the libertarian freedom camp about actions. For example, the rejection of the libertarian freedom camp of there being any sufficient cause for human actions. I don't accept that. And I don't believe it's a contradiction because I believe the Scripture is very clear, and I don't really think anybody argues this point with us as Calvinists, that mankind is responsible and is free agents. Usually what they say is the other things you say end up contradicting that, so you can't really hold that position. But you need to know that Calvinists do believe that man is responsible, and anybody who teaches that man is not responsible or he can do whatever he wants is not a Calvinist, not in any sense of the word. It's ridiculous. All right, so first thing. Man has always been and will always be a free agent and can do what he wants to do and he is responsible back to God. Now, secondly, we want to say that the scripture is very clear to teach also that God plans and makes happen all of these free actions of men, whether it be their thoughts or their words or their actions. And this sovereign planning and making happen by God, no way compromises 
man's free agency. Now let's let, okay. That's a great point. Let's stop and make sure we understand that, or we see that that particular principle is taught in Scripture. Uh, not because we're not just engaging in philosophical discussion here. We're saying that our position is grounded in Scripture. Now, one of the passages that I immediately think of to, to buttress that point that you just made is Acts chapter two, where Peter is uh, talking to these Jews on the day of Pentecost. And he says very clearly here two important things. This man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Didn't you just say that God ordains all events? Even the death of the cross was ordained by God. Now, the very next word is key. You nailed to a cross. So there you have the juxtaposition of these two concepts. God having determined everything in his sovereignty in eternity past to most certainly and infallibly occur and human responsibility for the choice that they make. You nailed him. It's your sin. So scripture can fit what you're talking about. It not can it. It does fit. It does say that God ordains and yet man is still responsible for the decisions that he makes another example there pastor john's talking about the death of the lord jesus christ actions which men committed which god ordained remember what we're saying god sovereignly ordains everything that happens in the world down to the last detail and that in no way compromises these actions of men being free and then being responsible to God for those actions. Now we'll come to that. But specifically we're trying to defend the idea that God controls not only actions, but here's an example where God controls thoughts. Ezra 1.1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that Cyrus sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, etc., etc., And the Lord talks elsewhere in the prophets in Isaiah about how he's going to do that through Cyrus. He's going to come to one who does not know him, and he's going to stir up his heart to do something that he otherwise, if you want to speak that way, wouldn't have done. Now, we had a professor in seminary who used what I thought was the greatest line to challenge us with these truths in the Scripture. He says, you know, usually what we have in our mind is this unbiblical, and this is the word that he used, bias. We have a bias against the idea that it's possible for God to ordain all thoughts, words, and actions and for man to still be a free agent. We have a bias against that idea for whatever reason. And you've got to get rid of that unbiblical bias and accept the fact that the Scripture teaches this absolute sovereign control. Now, we only gave two examples, and there are myriad other examples, along with doctrinal statements by the Apostle Paul that God does ordain all things. But aside from all of that, you've got to get rid of the unbiblical bias that God cannot ordain all things to the smallest detail and that man is still a free agent at the same time and is responsible for the actions. Okay, John, I see you signaling me that we've got to wrap this show up, and that's fine. Let me just point out before we, so we don't leave you completely in the lurch, we do also speak of man's moral and spiritual nature, which is a related concept to what we've talked about, but it's not exactly the same. So keep in mind, when we're talking about the will of man, we could be talking about his moral agency, his natural liberty, which he never 
gets rid of, no matter what condition he's in, then there's also, we speak of his spiritual nature, his moral nature, which we'll say more about next time. But I just want to get that in in case you were wondering where this all fits so, in. So as we wind down, then, in other words, here's a couple things we want to take away from this show. We're going to come back. We're going to take some of these same categories, concepts, and, and apply them in a, in a slightly different direction. But what we want to say here is there are the philosophical categories, determinism, you have libertarian freedom, and you have compatibilism. One of the things that we're trying to show you here is that although these are helpful, they are not necessarily ironclad, watertight categories. Sometimes we will use all three of them to help explain or, or help us really systematize what Scripture is saying about this issue. Second of all, please go away thinking about uh, these two points, and we've tried to make them from different angles. One... God is entirely sovereign over all, and his decree is at the root and cause of everything that exists. And yet, at the same time, secondly, we believe, because Scripture teaches us this, man is fully and entirely responsible for what he chooses and does. Thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. We'll come back next week and deal with the same topic. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.